0: Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism.
1: All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you.
2: To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber
0: or making a donation at Mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, org.
2: Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast,
1: Marriage on a Tightrope, and others.
2: If these programs benefit you
1: and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today.
2: All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive.
1: Testing one two three. Testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is a discussion between myself and Bill Reel on a talk given by Henry J. Iring. Now, this is Henry J. Iring. It's not President Iring. It is his son, Henry J. Iring, who is a president, but he's not in the presidency of the church. He is the president of BYU. Idaho. And on September 18th, 2018, he gave a remarkable talk to the student body at BYU-Idaho titled Gaining and Strengthening a Testimony. And this talk has at least two things in it that I find extremely problematic. If it had only one of these two things, it would have been worth discussing with you, Bill Reel. But two makes it irresistible, as far as commenting on, so I'm very glad that you're with me tonight talking about this particular speech by Henry J. Iring. Uh, grateful to be
0: here, R.F.M. The the thing I would say just to to set up as we go into this would be that here's a man who is a president of higher uh, an institution of higher learning, and as we get through the as we get into the talk and stop in various places, I just want the listeners to in their mind picture other presidents of institutions of higher learning and and think about how they would handle certain kinds of issues of education and learning and how uh President Henry J. Iring handles
1: it. And I think there's a drastic difference. I agree with you, that's one of the things that I noted as well. Also, as you're playing clips from it, remember that this is President Henry Iring's son, and President Iring is known for a couple of things, one of which is his chronic lip smacking while he's giving conference addresses, and the second is his crying, his pausing when he feels the spirit in order to get a hold of his emotions. Because both of those things appear to be learned behavior, at least in the case of his son, because he does exactly the same thing as his dad in exactly the same way. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that's nature over nurture. Yeah, so are you ready to begin this wonderful address? Let's do it.
2: Sister Eyring is a wonderful teacher, isn't she? I wonder, by show of hands, how many of you picked up enough coins to buy a hamburger? I think that would have been a stretch we didn't throw that much money around (laughs) but uh, I'm grateful for Sister Irene's teaching skills she is an outstanding CTR 6 teacher in primary Uh, the uh, the six boys under her direction love coming to primary and uh she just entertains them with that kind of uh, miraculous pedagogy, engaging pedagogy every week. I don't know how she does it. I'm not nearly so good. Um, I'm an assistant CTR-6 teacher. <laughs> and uh, when this talk is done you'll know why. But I must say uh, it is a sweet thing to see you here today. We have almost filled the BYU-Idaho Center today. Um, it was President Gordon B. Hinckley who encouraged us to build this building at the time that Elder Kimby Clark was serving as president of the university. And they initially pr- proposed an auditorium of 12,000 seats, which they thought was quite ambitious at the time. The university was smaller in terms of student body in those days. And uh, so it came as a great surprise when President Hinckley called President Clark and said, uh, we're going to approve your auditorium, but we want you to make it bigger. So rather than 12,000 seats, this is a 15,000 seat auditorium. Today, you wouldn't fit in the 12,000 seat auditorium. And, uh, that is a sign of prophecy and also of your goodness. I'm so grateful that you're here and that we fit.
1: Okay, so this is not one of the two things that I find especially problematic, but this is a classic instance, not only of how Henry J. Iring emulates his father's crying over these non-miraculous miracles that he's going to relate, but also it shows how far we have sunk in the LDS Church, not only in terms of miracles, but in terms of what constitutes prophecy. So they're going to build an auditorium. They've got the OK from Salt Lake. They want it for 12000 Gordon B. Hinckley, the president of the church, says, hey, your project is approved, but I want you to make it bigger for 15000 And on this night, September 18th, 2018, when Henry J. Iring, the president of BYU-Idaho, is talking they have almost filled the 15,000, so they can all be in there, whereas if they had only gone with the 12,000, then everybody who's present on that night could not have fit into the auditorium. And he gets all misty about this and claims that this is a sign of prophecy. When other minds looking at this, reasonable minds looking at this bill, might say, no, this is just a business decision by Gordon B. Hinckley, that he could predict that there would be more students in the future than there are now. And so they build it for 15000 And lo and behold, they've got room for the students to come and listen to President Henry Iring speak to them. The other problem with it, of course, is that in a few more years, they're going to have 20,000 students. And it's not going to be big enough for all of them. And I doubt that we'll be hearing the same sentiment from President Henry J. Iring at that time.
0: <laughs> so obviously a really low bar for revelation number one and number two is this idea that i bet if we went into the data that we would find that the uh, student body of byu idaho has been consistently growing um the decade before this happened it started off if i'm not mistaken rfm this started off as rick's college correct so Rick's College was kind of the small little LDS business college. It becomes BYU-Idaho. It has, since it made that shift, it has been a growing university uh, because it appeals to the LDS uh, segment of of students. And so I almost could assuredly guarantee that if we looked at BYU-Idaho's data for the 10 years prior to announcing a 15,000-seat uh Uh, capacity that this university had a growing student body.
1: Oh, absolutely. And my understanding of Rick's College is that it was a two-year college. It was not a full-fledged university, hence the name college. You had BYU in Utah, which was a full-fledged university. You could actually get a four-year degree there. And then there's also uh, a BYU campus in Hawaii where you can go and get a four-year degree. But Ricks College was sort of the left-handed, red-haired stepchild of the BYU University uh, institution. It was not really a university. And as you know, there are so many people applying to BYU in Utah that they have raised their standards very high to get admission. A lot of people who want to go there, who are members of the church, cannot go there. So it makes sense to create a new campus on a already existing. College up there in Idaho with Rick's College to make it into a university so that you can start getting some demand filled for university placement for tuition paying students. So, yes, I think that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that once you have converted Rick's College over to a university and under the facts as they existed at the time and probably continue to exist, that, yeah, you're going to be funneling a lot more students up there to Idaho onto that campus.
0: And speaking of rocket
1: scientists, there's one of those in the family too, right? <laughs> I guess so. We're not going to hear from him tonight, but we are going to hear from his grandson, as well as his son, because his son is going to tell a wonderful story about President Eyring here in a few minutes. Yeah. It doesn't take much for an Eyring to cry. <laughs>
2: ring. I am also grateful to testify of the truthfulness of the restored gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I was blessed to gain my testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was very young. I vividly recall talking with my mother one Sunday as she sat next to the bathtub in which my younger brother Stuart and I were bathing. That tells you how young I must have been because I didn't mind sharing my bath with Stuart. Earlier in the day my Sunbeam teacher had taught me about the celestial kingdom Somehow, I got the idea that getting into the Celestial Kingdom would be very difficult. That made me worry that I might not qualify. Sitting there in the tub that night, I looked up and asked my mother, Will I go to the Celestial Kingdom? I remember her serious, confident look as she said, Yes, you will. Mother responded so surely that it made me wonder if getting into the Celestial Kingdom was easy. I decided to test her on this point. I asked, will Stuart get in? (laughs) Yes, she replied, Stuart will too. Mother was right about Stuart. He is my parents' bishop and a wonderful husband and father. Stuart is on track for the celestial kingdom. I am trying to stay on track as well. Okay,
1: so Henry J. Iring tells this story, and it's a funny story about him and his brother Stuart were in the kids and they're taking a bath together, and what their mom says to him. A couple of comments here simply is this, that he says somehow when he was in primary, he had gotten the idea that getting into the celestial kingdom was very difficult. Now, Bill, I have no idea why any member of this church would get the idea from attending a church meeting that getting into the celestial kingdom is very difficult. That's shocking to me. How do you feel? It's funny that religion,
0: especially these high demand fundamentalist religions, which Mormonism is one, it's funny how there's this way of telling you just how broken you are before offering you all the solutions to your brokenness. And Mormonism has
1: a checklist as long as anybody's. Yeah. And so he's sitting there talking about how he got the idea that it was difficult because that's what his teacher taught him. And what I've heard many times in church and what everybody's heard many times in church is that getting into the celestial kingdom is very difficult. You have to keep all the freaking commandments of God, which in effect means all the commandments that the LDS church gives you, all the assignments, all the callings. You have to accept all the callings. But his mom says, no, you're going to be there. And so is your brother, Stuart. But notice how he changes that now, because he believes his mom, and he wants to paint her in the the best light. I mean, it is his mom, and he'll refer to her as his angel mother a number of times through this talk. But now he comes into present tense and says that his brother Stuart is on the right track to being in the celestial kingdom. Notice it's not he's going to be there like his mom said, but he's on the right track. And the reason he's on the right track is because... He has been busting his hump, doing everything he's supposed to do to the point where he is now a bishop and not just any bishop. He's a bishop of the ward where his parents live, which is President Iring and President Iring's wife. So Stuart is apparently the bishop of their ward. So he's on the right track because he's doing all the right things and filling all the right leadership callings. And he is progressing upward in the hierarchy of the church, which equates to being on the right track to going to the celestial kingdom in fulfillment of the prophecy that his mother made when he was a young boy sitting in the bathtub with his brother. The other thing I note about this is it's a funny story, but really it's kind of a nothing story as far as faith testimony goes. And yet, don't forget the lead in to this story is I gained a testimony of the LDS church when I was very young. So one would normally expect that. After that lead-in, you're going to have a faith-promoting story, some kind of experience that Henry J. Iring had when he was very young that showed him in some way that the church was true. But that's not what happens. He leads into the story about his mom saying, yeah, you're going to go to the celestial kingdom, and so is your brother. So I've got two thoughts. One is the
0: battle that Sister Iring obviously has in her mind that I think every mother in Mormonism has, which is on one hand, you know that making it to the celestial kingdom is hard and that lots of people are going to be lost and that the celestial kingdom is only reserved for the the most righteous, those who endure to the end and keep the commandments and receive the saving ordinances. And there's a realization in every Mormon mom's mind that trying to get her children into eternity to be with her is her treasured goal and yet she knows the possibility of losing some of her own kids is a real threat and on the other hand there's this need to tell our children uh, as a parent that you're going to make it you're going to make it i can't i can't stand to even think of the possibility of eternity without you so i'm going to convince myself and convince you that you're going to make it the the anguish and tension in that paradox, uh, and I don't even know that it's a paradox. Let's just say these two ideas juxtaposed against each other. The the tension there, um, I think, is unhealthy for a parent to even have to wrestle with such a thing. The other thing is, this is Elder Iring, the apostle. It's his son uh, who's serving as a bishop. It's his other son who's giving this talk, and for an apostle's son to make it to bishop, I mean, I know we have this idea like the church is true and the stake presidents led by the Holy Ghost and the, and the stake president prays about who's to be the next leader. But if we just cut to the chase, the possibility of an apostle's son being called as a bishop, if he's only moderately uh, righteous, only moderately uh doing the things that some of the other priesthood brethren in that ward are doing, It almost feels like a no-brainer that these kinds of things happen, because all we have to do is look at these leaders and look at their children and see what kinds of positions they hold to realize that there's some favoring, intentional or unintentional, conscious or unconscious, there's some favoring
1: towards the family members of leadership. Yeah, lesser minds would call it nepotism. Yeah, right. Lesser minds. And speaking of lesser minds. Actually,
0: lesser minds would call it revelation. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, speaking of lesser minds, I think we're to the point where Henry J. Iring is going to tell this story about his dad and this burning question that he had for his dad, which he asked him about 30 years ago.
2: My testimony of the church hasn't faltered since mother first told me that it is true. Yet I have not been immune to challenges and have at times struggled to defend my faith. A particularly unsettling challenge came when I was a young law clerk. A supervisor who knew of my church membership told me that new research had invalidated the Book of Mormon. The, excuse me, the Book of Abraham. I was shaken by that accusation, but I felt confident in a secret weapon. My father had recently been called as a general authority, and I was sure that he would have arguments to counter those I faced at work. It was in such a state of confidence that I called my father on the phone. I described my situation and eagerly awaited his answer. I was sure that he would refute the accusations about the Book of Abraham. But his answer surprised me. He simply asked, Have you read the Book of Abraham? Yes, I replied. He asked, How did you feel? How do you feel when you read it? Good, I admitted. What else do you need to know? he asked. Of course, that phone conversation didn't help me much at work.
1: This is one of the two main points of this talk that absolutely floored me when I heard it. First thing is that this has got to be the most anti-intellectual story that I have ever heard told in the LDS church. The only thing that makes it more amazing is that it is being told by the president of an institution of higher learning, like you mentioned, Bill. And what he's doing is he's relating a story with words and instruction and deep counsel from his father, who is a general authority at the time and currently not only an apostle, but in the first presidency of the LDS church. When I heard this, the first thing that came to my mind was, well, what if Henry J. Eyring had called his dad because he had some questions about premarital sex. And Henry J. Iron calls up his dad, who had recently been called as a member of the, uh, as a general authority and says, Dad, I got questions about premarital sex. And his dad says, well, have you tried having premarital sex? Well, yes, I have, Dad. Hmm. And how did it make you feel? Well, Dad, it made me feel good. And then his dad says, what else do you need to know? So as you point out,
0: and, and I hope the listeners catch this. we I've gone into this several times and we've talked about this. This is a wood tool because wood tools essentially reinforce that whatever the subject matter is, whatever system you reside in, a wood tool reinforces that uh, that concept is good and that system is worth staying in. So as you point out, if we're talking about premarital sex, this answer works um the opposite of what Mormonism would like it to, and yet it still works. And so if uh Henry J. Iring was a Scientologist and Henry J. Iring goes to his dad, uh Henry Iring, who is uh David Miscavige's right-hand man in Scientology, can you sense how the response, the way in which he answers? Have you read the book Dianetics? Yes. How did it make you feel? I felt good great. What else is there to know? Wood tools never are sufficient to resolve the concern. Here's the other issue. Iring um, mentions, the son mentions that he goes to his dad expecting a solution to the problem. And I think all Latter-day Saints who dive into the history of Mormonism experience this, where they go into the data and they find problems. The book of Abraham isn't working. Joseph's treasure digging. Uh, Joseph's marrying young brides. Brigham Young seems to be uber violent and preaching violence that seems to be beyond uh, what an what a, a president of the church, what a prophet, seer, and revelator should do. And every one of us, to a T, we start off our faith shift, our faith crisis. It starts off by us going, "There's got this can't be true. This has to be anti-Mormon material." And if I just go to somebody who's more informed than me, they're going to walk me through how this stuff works and adds up. The reality is every single time we go to somebody and say, hey, this book of Abraham thing doesn't add up. Could you please help me? We are fully expecting that person to say, wait a minute, let's slow down. Let's talk about the issue. But what we end up getting in response every single time is, is a wood tool response. Have faith. God will answer your questions on the other side. How did you feel when you prayed about the church? How did you feel when you read the Book of Mormon? Never does somebody sit down and give us a logical answer. So all of a sudden, early on in our transition of kind of deconstructing or seeing the messiness or beginning to have a faith crisis, early on, We sense that if we're going to be believers in this thing, we're going to have to set aside our expectation that real, rational, logical answers are going to be supplied to us. And we right away have to do something different, which Irene here admits. He goes, I was surprised that dad didn't have an answer and that dad instead gave me this other way of reconciling this. And you can tell he's already become comfortable with the response that we do get which is don't you feel good about it and if so then what's the problem
1: yes and i will tell you um the more i thought about this the more i came to understand why it is that this had such a powerful negative impact on me this story because there's multiple levels at play here first off let's just discuss what happened okay because Henry J. Iring is not going to tell us what really happened. Now, he tells us something. He tells us that a supervisor at work, he's a law clerk. He went to law school. He graduated from law school the same year I did in 1989, which puts it about 30 years ago, which is when he places a story later on in his talk. He's been to law school, okay? He is learning how to think, presumably. And a supervisor at a place that he clerks, not just a uh, colleague, but a supervisor tells him that recent research has shown that the book of Abraham is a fraud. Well, you and I both know what it is that he's really telling him. What he's telling him is that the Joseph Smith papyri were found back in 1967 or 68. So it's not that recent. It's about 20 years as of the time the story is happening in the late 1980s. They've been translated by competent Egyptologists, and what is discovered is that there is nothing in these papyrus fragments that bears any resemblance whatsoever with what we currently have as the book of Abraham. And the problem is, is that Joseph Smith claimed that he was translating from the Egyptian on these papyrus fragments into the book of Abraham. So if he's telling the truth, i.e. Joseph Smith telling the truth about translating, we would expect there to be some places on the papyrus that mirror or closely resemble parts, at least, of what we have in the book of Abraham. But there is no such thing. Now, Henry J. Iring, the son, does not go into that detail, but it's clear to me that's obviously what's happening, because what else would it be? If you know the issues, you know what it was that was brought to his attention. That is a faith shaker, and it can be a faith breaker. And I know a personal friend for whom it was a faith nuker. And that happened a couple of years ago. So I can certainly understand how it was that Henry J. Eyring is feeling at this point. His world is being rocked. He doesn't have any idea how to counter this because apparently, I mean, presumably he did some research and found that there's some element of truth to it. It's not something you can just say, oh, that's a lie. Actually, the papyrus fragments are the book of Abraham. And we have Egyptologists who have translated and found out that that's the case. No, this is a real troubling issue. It's troubling for many people. It was troubling for Henry J. Iring back when his supervisor told him about it 30 years ago. So he goes to his dad. His dad is the magic bullet. His dad has recently been called as a general authority. And once again, this plays into the idea that members have is that general authorities have all the answers simply by virtue of the fact that they are a general authority. His dad wasn't an apostle at the time, though he is at the time he's telling the story and that colors what it is he's saying as well. So, this is what Henry J. Iring is saying, and this is to me an incredible indictment, not only of the Book of Abraham, but of Henry J. Iring, the president of BYU Idaho, as well as an indictment of his father, President Iring, in the first presidency of the Church. Here you've got Henry Iring, the president of the Church, the father whom he asks. President Iring is a past professor at Stanford University. One would think that he might be involved somewhat with intellectual pursuits there and scholarship, being a professor at Stanford University. President Iring is also a past president of Rick's College in Idaho. That's right, his dad was the president of the same college that he is now the president of, though back in the 70s, when President Iring was the president, it was Ricks College, and now his son, miraculously, maybe that's the biggest miracle I've heard in this whole story, or recently from LDS discourse, miraculously, his son ends up becoming president of the same institution. He is the past president of Ricks College, that's President Iring. He was also serving as the commissioner of church education for a number of years, and this is his answer, his son calls him up, says, Dad, my faith is really shaken. I was just told by my supervisor that the book of Abraham and recent research, you know, that intellectual scholarship stuff, that research stuff, has shown that it's a fraud. And what is Elder Iring's response? Well, if it makes you feel good when you read it, what else do you need to know? So this this um, goes into not only Elder Iring as a general authority, and when I say elder, I'm talking about the president, President Iring. They both have the same name, but a different initial. So dad and son may make it clearer. But this this segues now into a second level, which is President Iring as a father. His kid calls him with a serious question that has troubled his faith about the gospel and specifically about the book of Abraham. And you know, it has ramifications throughout the entire gospel and, and restoration. And the best that President Irene can do is ask how his son feels about it. I mean he's phoning an in at this point. This is like drive by parenting. What he doesn't do is say, "Look, let's uh give me the specifics. Let's dig into this. I'll find out some answers. I know some people who are scholars. We'll get this figured out. We'll give you an actual answer to your question. He doesn't do any of that. and the other thing I get throughout this story. And I don't know if it's fair, I want to be delicate with this point, but every time that Henry J. Iring, the speaker, the son, is talking about personal contact with a parent, it's with his mother. Okay, his mother's giving him and his brother a bath. He's going to talk later on about cuddling up with his mother and his mother reading them the scriptures. In every personal interaction with parents, it's his mother, his mother, his mother, And the only time his father enters into the picture is when he picks up the phone and calls his dad with this really troubling question. And this is all the time that his dad has to give to it. Well, how does it make you feel? Well, it makes me feel good. Okay, what else do you need to know? Okay, next call, because I'm busy. I'm very busy for the church. I've got a full-time job. I've got to do all this stuff for the church because I'm working my way up the hierarchy because I'm on the right track for the celestial kingdom too, son. And so this is all the time I have to give you. Now, having said that, I'm going to share with you just a brief story about myself. I was in college. I was an undergrad at University of Texas at Austin. I'd just gotten back from my mission. I've got a friend named Claudia who comes to me and she's got a question about the church. It probably wasn't the book of Abraham, but it was some of those questions. You know, she had been presented with some anti-Mormon literature. She has questions. It's troubled her faith. I don't just as a friend. She's not my daughter. She's not my son. I don't just say, well, have you prayed about it? How does it make you feel? What else do you need to know? No, I took this book and I researched the question that she had so that I could come up with an answer, not only for myself, but also for her. So I could answer her question to her satisfaction with facts, which I did at the time. I don't know what the question was. I don't know if I'd still have the same position today or see it the same way. But I took the time to do that for a friend. And I can only compare that with what President Eyring the Father is doing with his own son here. Now, having said all that, I'm about to transfer over to looking at it from the point of view of the sun, peeling back all these layers, but I want to stop here and ask if you got any comments about this so far, Bill.
0: So a couple of things. One is that I constantly in my mind as we've gone through this talk and as we prepared for this podcast is I'm thinking about hiring the son and, and the dad and the grandfather for that matter. Iring the son, goes to law school. I'm presuming he has a law degree. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to say he's a lawyer, but at least has an education in the legal profession. The law, the whole idea of law is getting down to the facts. It's letting the facts determine innocence or guilty. It's letting the facts speak. It's looking, it's not letting your emotion get the best of you, although you realize that emotion can manipulate And when you're in the legal profession, you understand that. Um, and so you're, you're also, you're trying to insert that perhaps at times as well as be aware that the other side is going to use that because you have these people, human beings as a jury or as a judge who on some level are not supposed to let their emotion get in the way, but you realize that that's part of being human. So, but you, but you recognize like the facts trump that, um, or at least should you're a university president. When I go to BYU-Idaho's website and I look at all of their speeches, if we go to any other university that's not tied to a high-demand fundamentalist religion, you will find that that university wants diversity. It wants different opinions. It wants people to be exposed to contradictions. It wants people to be exposed to uh, to two competing ideas or maybe 10 competing ideas and to teach these kids how to critically think. When you go into a church-owned university, BYU, BYU-Idaho, there's the Virginia LDS Business College, when you go to any of these places, anybody who offers a differing opinion, they don't want that person within 10 miles of the campus. Rarely do you see these universities that are church-owned Permit somebody who is uh, very diverse, very differing from the church's stance, be permitted on campus to give some kind of a seminar, a talk, a presentation. It's so different. It's not a real university in that sense. They're not teaching the kids to critically think. They're not teaching the kids to chase down the facts. They're simply giving the kids a place to go to school that is not the normal college experience intentionally. Like, we don't want our Mormon kids going off to Stanford. We don't want our Mormon kids going off to Harvard. We don't want our Mormon kids going off to Bowling Green State University. We want our kids to be um, presented with a consistent gospel view. So we have to have these schools for these kids to go to so that they don't learn to think critically and that they are taught to trust their feelings over the facts. That's one. Number two, I want to make this comment. When Henry B. Iring, the father, is presented the problem by his son, I think there's something that is unsaid here, which is that it appears that the general authority, Iring had already knew this issue. He doesn't, he doesn't ask his son, well, hey, I don't know what we're talking about. Explain this to me. So he already knows that the book of Abraham is problematic and that things don't add up there. And he knows there's no solution, which is why he doesn't even attempt to present his son with a solution. The only solution he has is, how did you feel when you read it? That is the apologetic response when you realize that if we just talk about the data, that I'm not going to have an answer. In other words, Henry B. Iring, the general authority, knows that it is worthless on this issue when this conversation occurs. He already knows that it doesn't make any sense to go into the problem and to talk about the facts that surround the problem, that the only solution he has to offer is to try and convince his son to set the facts aside and to go with his feelings. And again, that just feels so – that feels so dirty um, as I sit and I think about using that kind of an answer as the solution to all of these problems that happen within
1: Mormonism. Yes. And so, the sun – Now, looking at this from the point of view of the son, I've tried to look at it from the point of view of President Eyring, the father, both as a a general authority and now as an apostle, as well as President Eyring as a father. I want to look at it from Henry J. Eyring, the son's point of view, as a son, like you've already touched on. And like he explains, he has a secret weapon. He knows that his father will have the answer. He's not only his father, he's not only this really smart guy who's a professor at Stanford and all these other things that he's done and past president of Ricks College. But he knows that because he's a general authority, he will have the answer. He is sure of it. He says he was confident that his father would have the answer. And so he eagerly calls his dad and asks him the question, and he gets this response. And you'll recall that right at the end of the clip, what the son says is, Well, that phone conversation didn't help me that much at work. You see, this isn't just a theoretical or academic exercise that the son is talking about. The son is talking about a real world situation where he's at work clerking while he's in law school. His supervisor comes to him with a very specific allegation about the book of Abraham, which targets the core of the restoration. If it's true. Because the ripples go out from there like shockwaves, as you know, Bill, to touch every aspect of the restoration if these allegations about the book of Abraham are correct. And his dad tells him this weak sauce. He doesn't give him an answer that's going to help him out at work. Because what's he supposed to do? Go back and tell a supervisor, hey, uh, you know, you told me that recent research says the book of Abraham is a fraud. Well, I've read it and I feel good when I read it. That's not going to work that's not on the same playing field. One is dealing with feelings and the other is dealing with facts and research and scholarship. And you can't answer facts and research and scholarship with feelings and expect the person on the other side to take you seriously. And I also think that that kind of illustrates how it was that the son, Henry J. Iring must have felt when he got this answer From his dad, the same way he felt when he got the answer from his dad, which is extreme disappointment. I mean, he doesn't have to say that it comes through in spades in the talk. Extreme disappointment is exactly how he knows his supervisor would feel if he gave the supervisor the same answer that his father, the general authority, had given to him. And this is all we find out about the story. We don't find out where it went from there. Did the son, Henry J. Iring just let it drop with the supervisor? Did he bring it up again? Did he make any effort to try and deal with this issue with his supervisor and convince his supervisor that the supervisor is wrong in some important way and that the church really is still true and the book of Abraham really is still scripture? We don't go there. We don't find out those details. And one of the reasons is because it's not going to be good. The second reason is it has nothing to do with a story and i hear you about ready to say something and i'll say that before i look at this from henry j iring as president of byu idaho telling the story go ahead bill
0: um there had to have been a, a pool uh, being pulled both directions for henry j iring the son because on one hand you're at law school you're you're this you have this supervisor and all day you're there you're you're working or getting your edu- whatever it is you're there and your whole learning experience is training you to get to the facts and to present the facts in a way that convince others that your argument has weight. And yet there's this one tangent in Henry J. Eyring's life where the facts simply can't matter because if the facts matter, you lose. But on the other hand, his dad is a leader in his religious system. So imagine being on one hand, your dad, your very father is a a leader within a religious system, which requires that there's a belief in that system. You can't be like, well, hey, I'm, I'm Henry B. Irene the Apostle and I don't believe any of this son, but I'm here anyway. It doesn't make any sense, right? So that there has to be this pull to trust your father and to want to believe because you assume this guy's all in. He believes. And I want my dad to be good and be right and to be on the right page and to, to have invested his life in something that that is worthwhile and true. And on the other hand, every day the alarm clock goes off and I get up and I take a shower and I go into this place where the facts matter. And on this other thing that's part of my life, I have to always turn the argument away from the facts and turn it to emotional appeal, turn it to... Uh, having people understand that their elevation emotion, which we'll talk about later, their elevation emotion, uh, that phenomenon, that psycho, the psychological phenomenon of feeling warm and fuzzy, that that is a testimony that my religious system is true, regardless of who else in the world feels that. I can't imagine the tension in this guy's mind as he's being pulled in both of those directions.
1: Yeah, it could make a guy lose his hair.
0: <laughs> or cry a little.
1: <laughs> okay. 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 Serious time. Serious now. Uh, I do want to get to this fourth aspect. Now, as the son, Henry J. Eyring is telling the story as the president of BYU, Idaho, you've touched on the fact he is the president of an institution of higher learning. And he's telling the story. This is a story you do not tell. Okay. There is no good reason to tell this story. Because what he is doing publicly in front of the, you know, almost 15,000 student body that's crammed their way into this new conference center at BYU-Idaho, what he's telling all of them is that there is a massive allegation out there against the Book of Abraham. And he found out about it 30 years ago. And he actually says that his supervisor, when he's clerking, as a law clerk. So a guy of some authority, it's not the janitor talking to him after work one day. This is his supervisor saying that recent research has shown and proven that the book of Abraham is a fraud. You don't put that out there unless you have a damn good answer to it. You understand what I mean, Bill? You don't bring up a massive a crack in the foundation of the entire belief system of everybody who's present unless you can show that that crack isn't really there. It doesn't matter and in fact, it's actually stronger this foundation is than this allegation appears. You don't bring up a massive problem or any problem with your argument unless you have a good response to it because otherwise, guess what? You're gonna lose the argument. And what he's doing is he's telling all the students there, there's this massive problem with the book of Abraham. And here's the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem is, do you feel good about it when you read it? This is a catastrophic miscalculation on his part, because what he has allowed every single member who's present, who are members of the church. These are the up and coming generation. These are the future leaders of the church. What he has done is he he has infected them all with the proposition and the allegation that the book of Abraham is a fraud and then done absolutely nothing to address the allegation before they go home and go back to their dorm rooms. So they go on the internet, all 14,913 people there
0: go home. And if, if only, 10% 10% of them, 15% of them, 20% of them go home and say, I wonder what he was talking about. I wonder what that book of Abraham thing was. Let me do a simple Google search. All of a sudden, we may be back down to about 12,000 people sitting in that room.
1: Yeah, and some of them didn't
0: even wait till they left the auditorium. Right. They pulled out their smart device and said, what's the issue here? And as you read the essay, you begin to realize like the church has all these solutions to a problem, And all of these solutions, why why offer all these solutions unless each one of those have problems too? And all of a sudden you go down the rabbit hole and you're reading Robert Rittner or you're looking at Brian Haglid who's admitting that all of this doesn't add up even though he also feels good about it. And suddenly you're like, okay, I wonder what other issues there are. And you and I both know where that search ends up.
1: Yes. And this is, um, it's like it's Henry J. Eyring's contribution to the scholarly research and discussion on the Book of Abraham. Well, there may be four or five alternate theories in the Book of Abraham essay, but I'm going to add another one of my own, which is if it makes you feel good, do it. <laughs> Uh, That seems to be the teaching here, right? It is. And, you know, we're getting these mixed messages all over the place. And I've got to tell you, this kind of impacted me deeply. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I probably already have because there is another significant element of this class we need to get to.
2: But it is this whole love hate relationship
1: that the church has with scholars. And among scholars, I include historians. Historians are scholars in a certain field. But the church loves scholars. Uh, basically, no, actually, the church hates scholars, except when it needs them. Then it loves scholars, and it's kind of like being a lawyer. Everybody hates lawyers until they need one. Well, the church feels the same way about scholars. The church hates scholars until they need them. So going back to 1993, you have this incredibly anti-intellectual comment from Elder Boyd K. Packer, May eighteenth, nineteen 1993, when he says in a rather famous quote, There are three areas where members of the church influenced by social and political unrest are being caught up and led away. I choose these three because they have made major invasions into the membership of the church. And then he says, the dangers I speak of come from the gay lesbian movement, the feminist movement and the ever present challenge from the so-called scholars or intellectuals. They are in the top three public enemies of the church according to Elder Boyd K. Packer. And I know that uh, I think the gay lesbian movement, whom he labels as an enemy or a danger, the feminist movement that he labels as an enemy or a danger, uh, they get generally the most commentary when this quote is brought up. But it cannot be overlooked that he's also calling scholars or intellectuals being one of the top three enemies of the church. And that's back in 1993. So there's the hate relationship between the church and intellectuals. But then, as recently as October 28th of 2018, I mean, what is today? Today is November 6th, 2018. This is a week ago. President M. Russell Ballard, who's the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, gives a an area conference. It's a broadcast to the 120 states in the Utah North area. It's October 28th, 2018. And he says something completely different, 180 degrees opposite about scholars. As a senior apostle in the church, he says, when I have had a question that I cannot answer. Okay. Notice that lead in clause. What's going to follow that? When I have had a question that I cannot answer, well, this is an apostle. He's going to say, I go pray about it, right? Or I go read the book of Abraham and see if it makes me feel good. Okay. no, he doesn't say any of that. And I know you know what he says, Bill, but going on, what he says is when I have had a question that I cannot answer, I turn to those who can help me. And who is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about other apostles. He's not talking about people who are higher up in the food chain of the church than he is, of which I think there's only one or two. He says the church is blessed with trained scholars And those who have devoted a lifetime of study, who have come to know our history and scriptures. Now, remember, he's describing someone other than himself. He hasn't given a lifetime of study. He has not come to know our history and scriptures. He has to turn to these scholars who do know the history and scriptures and that these thoughtful men and women. This is continuing with his quote. These thoughtful men and women provide context And background, so we can better understand our sacred past and our current practices. These are the mixed messages that we get in Mormonism. From Elder Boyd K. Packer saying that scholars and intellectuals are public enemy number one, two, or at least three in 1993, to Elder Ballard saying on October 28th, 2018, that these are the people that he turns to. When he has a question that he cannot answer, these are the people who are going to be able to answer the questions about our sacred past and our current practices, because God knows Elder Ballard has no clue about that. He's only a senior apostle in the LDS Church. He doesn't know the answers to these questions. But you get those two conflicting kinds of comments, and then on this September eighteenth, 2018 talk we've been talking about by the president of BYU-Idaho, he's really flipping back to what Boyd K. Packer says. And he's not being intellectual. This is anti-intellectualism. It's not found, the answer is not found in research scholarship and intellectualism. The answer is found by a feeling with the obvious implication that research scholarship and intellectualism is not the way to find out truth. It is simply through reading, ostensibly praying, though he doesn't mention praying even, and having a good feeling about something.
0: So I actually don't see a conflict here, and here's why. The, there's two types of scholars in the church's mind. There are, and, and the church likes, as you pointed out, Elder Ballard mentioned, our faithful scholars. What makes a scholar faithful to the church? And as I've sat and I've listened to Stephen Harper, as I've listened to uh, Matt Groh, as I've listened to uh, Mark Ashurst McGee, and I again, I like these men. I, if these guys are listening, I don't want them to take it personal. But the difference between a so-called intellectual, as Elder Packer has referenced before, um, or, or the scholarship or the critics that are... Uh, educated outside the church. The difference is that a faithful scholar knows the data, but rather than make an argument based on the data, our faithful scholars appeal to emotion. If you go back to RFM, the conversation that you and I had about Stephen Harper's uh, little presentation with the lady where he's trying to answer the tough questions about church history... The reality was Stephen Harper didn't ha- want to go into the data at all. He wanted to avoid it. So the scholars the church likes the scholars the church says yeah yeah these guys these are the guys we want to we want to go look uh, look to and, and get answers from. It's the guys who are willing to say like I know the stuff but I'm not going to make my argument based on the facts. Instead I'm going to ask people if they feel good. So it's nice to have a smart person in the room who's informed, who knows the facts. But if that smart person is unwilling because they know where the facts go to use the facts as part of their argument, then they're really not doing scholarship. They might be a scholar, but their argument has nothing to do with scholarship. And those are the kinds of scholars that the church likes. The church wants scholars who the scholarship is not the priority.
1: Yeah. The church wants non-scholars, scholars, scholars. right? They want non-intellectual intellectuals, right? We want people to, that we can point to and say, look, he
0: knows all this stuff and he's still here, but every single one of those guys doesn't use the data to show why they're here. That's not their reason for being here. And so they're really, yeah, they're, they went to school. They've got a degree. They know the history. But their argument has nothing to do with the facts.
1: Yes. I suppose that one of the reasons that this quote from uh, President Ballard, this recent quote, rankles me a bit is because it describes me to a T. This is what he says. Now, remember, I'm going to go ahead and say this is my self-identification. If you agree with it, fine. And if you don't, fine. But this is how I see myself. He says, when I have had a question that I cannot answer, I turn to those who can help me. Now, here's his definition of those who can help him. The church is blessed with trained scholars and those who have devoted a lifetime of study who have come to know our history and scriptures. Bill Reel, that's me. I have devoted a lifetime of study. I am a trained scholar. I have come to know the church's history and scriptures, And yet I do not think that President Russell Ballard would consider me a blessing to the church. If
0: RFM, you and I, went to every one of the trusted scholars in Elder Ballard's eyes, and we sat down with each one of them, and we said, we'd like to talk about the top 10 issues of the church. We'd like to have a three-hour conversation on each one of those. We'd like to go through the data, go through the facts, and we have one rule— which is that you cannot make any appeals to emotion, but must stick entirely to the data in the facts. Do you know what would happen in every one of those conversations that you and I would have with each of those guys? What's that bill? We would kick their rear end and every one of them knows it. Stephen Harper knows it. Mark Ashurst McGee knows it. Matt Groh knows it. All of these guys know it. If you take emotional appeal out of their bag of tricks they don't have a half a leg to stand on.
1: Interesting. Yep, yeah, I think you're right. And one of the other things about this is that I have studied uh, Mormonism since I was baptized in 1978. And I have studied it deeply, widely, broadly, thoroughly, whatever adjective you want to have there. Or adverb, actually. But I have studied it backwards and forwards. And even in my patriarchal blessing, it says, you know, study the scriptures and the treasures of heaven will be open unto you and knowledge will flow unto you from the vault of heaven and things like this. Well, I took it seriously. I took it seriously. What church leaders were saying at the time is that they wanted the members of the church to study the scriptures, to become scriptorians. And I spent 40 years doing exactly that only to find out at the end that they didn't really mean it.
0: Right. Not really. At the end of the day, they don't really want you to know the history. They don't really want you to know where the, where the logic walks these facts out to. They really don't.
1: They want you to know the history. They want you to know, and they want you to believe the things that they want you to believe. And they will tailor the history so that you will believe the things that they want you to believe.
0: Yeah. In fact, when they say to go learn again, over and over again, they say only go learn from the approved sources. They don't want you to go look at, they don't want you to think critically. They don't want you to see the other side of the argument. They, in other words, we make this argument that the Holy Ghost is this amazing tool to discern truth. But the, but in reality, the leaders are so scared that if the faithful side of the story sits side by side with the critical side of the story, that the Holy Ghost not only will be useless, which means that people would come out 50 50. But in fact, somehow Satan's ability trumps the Holy Ghost tenfold. Because for every hundred people who go down the rabbit hole, I have to believe by my own anecdotal data that 90% or more of those folks end
1: up leaving the church. Yeah, it's another victory for Satan. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Like the word Mormon. (laughs) He is winning victories all over the
0: place. Every place. End zone to end zone. Touchdowns all over (laughs)
1: Oh, my gosh! Maybe you should start playing for the Browns.
0: <laughs> we could use them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that at this point, Bill Reel and I have pretty well thrashed this one major element of the talk by Henry J. Iring, and the other main element we are going to get to in part two of this podcast. It deserves an hour at least because what Henry J. Iring is going to tell the students at BYU-Idaho, is that any time that they are tempted to find a problem or a flaw or an issue with the church or church leaders, then their response to that needs to be to ignore the problem with the church and focus instead on the problems with themselves. Right. Are you true? Yes, exactly. That is going to be its own episode. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.